Hi, everybody, and welcome again to Wednesday night, online only at Turning Point Church. And we're coming to you again from the sanctuary that is completely empty, but I'm looking at you, and I see you in my mind's eye, and it's so good to come to you again so we can continue. We're almost finished with the book of Hebrews, and uh, tonight we're going to be going through chapter 12. But before I do, I have a couple of really important announcements. Can you believe that in a few days is Mother's Day? Uh, this Sunday's Mother's Day, and we're doing something very special. We, now, we had to figure out a way to do this when we can't meet in person. So here's what we're doing. This Saturday, this coming Saturday, from 10 to noon, we're going to be in the parking lot with photo booths. We want all you moms to bring your kids and bring your own props. Just remember, bring a BYOP, bring your own props. That means teddy bears, flowers, anything you want uh, to be included in the pictures you take with your kiddos. Bring them up here, and we're going to have people waiting for you with big smiles on their faces, and we're going to take pictures. Uh, and just think of it as, um, wow, COVID Mother's Day, you know, the time we couldn't meet. But you're going to look back on this one day and go, when that, in that terrible time when we couldn't meet and that virus was traveling everywhere, we still had Mother's Day, and this is what we did on Mother's Day in the Turning Point parking lot. We took pictures of the kids with the kids in the photo booth, and I think you'll look back at it one day and uh, be really, really glad you did it. So that's between 10 and noon this Saturday morning, the Saturday before Mother's Day. And then also, you are going to be receiving, you might have already received it, an email from Turning Point with a survey. And in that survey, we're asking you how you would feel most comfortable in returning in person to church, uh, Turning Point services. It's, a, it's not a really long survey. I, I filled it out. I took it. And we want to know what you think. We want to know what you would feel comfortable with, what you would be okay with, what you might request uh, when the day comes that we open the doors again and we begin to meet again. So it's a survey coming in the email. All of our members are going to be getting it. Thousands of them have been sent out. And please take the time to fill out that survey and send it back in because we want to hear from you. We're going to listen to you. And what you suggest and what you request uh, is going to play a big role in what we have available here and how we reopen when we begin services again, okay? Thank you so much. Now, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12. I want you to grab your Bible. Grab your Bible. Uh, whatever version you've got, King James, New King James, New Living Translation, uh, New International Version, whatever it is you've got. Don't do a message Bible. No, don't do a message Bible. That's not even really a Bible. You can't study the Bible with the message. And, and don't do, um, well, don't do a paraphrase. Uh, don't do the passion either. No, 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 not the passion, not the message. Get a real translation, all right? A real one. So grab your Bible and get ready to open it up to Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to talk about the race that we're all in together, the spiritual race we're all running. And we're also going to talk about how God disciplines us. And it's a little tough to read these verses, but I think it's going to help some of you um, really navigate the trials you're experiencing right now. So <clears throat> let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessing on the Word of God. And we pray that, Lord, as we open up the Scriptures and study together this powerful chapter, that you will open to us the Word of God. Let the Spirit of the Lord, the teacher of the church, the great teacher of the church, open the Scriptures to us so that we can understand it and apply it and grow thereby. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you have your Bibles. Open them. Hebrews chapter 12. Now, last time we closed out the second half of chapter 11 with a sobering look at the many Old Testament saints that suffered greatly for their faith. Unlike the faith walkers that are listed in the first half of Hebrews 11, those listed in the second half, uh, they didn't get a miracle deliverance. They didn't receive a powerful breakthrough. But no, they were called on to suffer and to endure and finally to die in faith for the faith. 
And uh, so that's the way Hebrews 11 ended. Now, Hebrews chapter 12 is going to be a perfect lead-in from chapter 11. As a matter of fact, it begins with a therefore, and you know what I say, whenever you see a therefore, you need to look and see what it's there for, because therefore is a connecting word. It is calling to mind something we have just heard, and it's about to comment on what we have just heard and add to what we have just heard. It's sort of saying, now, in light of this, let me tell you further about that. So let's read chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to read about a great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, or another version says, entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race. There it is, the race that is set before us. You ought to say right where you are, I'm in a race. When you and I got saved, we got drafted into a war, and we got placed into a race. Both things happen, drafted into a spiritual war and placed into a race. And so that's the, that's the, uh, how chapter 12 begins. Keep that in mind because that's really going to matter as we cover more verses. We're in a race and the race is set before us. Now, he's not telling us that the saints, uh, the great cloud of witnesses, the, the saints of, of chapter 11 are watching from heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the lasting witness of their walk of faith And their patient endurance encourages us to press forward and to live like they did, to walk by faith, not by sight. It's not telling us these people are peering over the portals of heaven, watching us in our daily battles and our daily walk. That's not what it's saying. It's saying their testimony uh, speaks to us. They are speaking to us. They are witnesses to us. That we are to walk by faith, not by sight. We're to practice perseverance and we're to practice endurance, running this race that is set before us. Now notice the writer says we're to lay aside two things in order to run our race well. He says, first, lay aside every weight. Now a weight is not a sin. If it were a sin, it wouldn't be distinguishing between the two in this verse. So what is a weight? A weight is not a sin. A weight is an encumbrance. For instance, an Olympic track star would never wear heavy clothing when that gun fires and he sets off on his race to win the race and to hopefully win a medal. No, he's not going to wear cumbersome clothing. He wears track clothing. Super, super light. There's almost no weight to it. He refuses to encumber himself. And that's, that's a weight. Weights can refer, I believe, to fleshly distractions and unnecessary things that hinder our ability to move forward unencumbered. Weights might be tasks that we have said yes to that God didn't tell us to get involved in. And, and we, we've got our, all of our time eaten up by this, that, and the other thing that people have asked us to do or we felt guilty about not doing. So we're doing them. And, and, there, and it's, it's become a weight. See, some of you, you're so tired. It's all you can do to pray. It's all you can do to get into the Word of God because you're so weighted down with this, that, and the other thing. And have you ever thought about praying whether or not God wants you involved in all these different things? I've learned a long time ago that there is an anointed no. There is an anointing on that little two-letter word no that sometimes when people try to put something on us that is going to take up a lot of our time and distract us from the things God is really calling us to, it's really okay to say no if it's not of God. I believe a weight is something that can we, we allow our time to be consumed by unnecessary trivialities. I can name a few. Facebook, Instagram, social media. Um, I don't know about you, but I've, I've, I've seen. Listen, I, I cycle all the time. You know that. 
And I go out on bike trails where people are walking, and I can't tell you how many times, I mean all the time, I see people staring at their iPhones, talking on their iPhones, fixed on their iPhones, instead of looking around at the beautiful nature that surrounds them. They're absolutely addicted to social media. And I believe social media can be a weight. I believe Facebook can be a weight. I believe Twitter can be a weight. And we got to be very careful what we allow ourselves to be weighted down, distracted by. Because, you know, I really believe that the devil is a master distractor. He will do anything to distract us away from the most important things. You know, Mary sat at Jesus' feet while Martha clanged around in the kitchen, busy about serving, and yet Mary, Jesus said, chose the best part that would never be taken away from her. She invested in her spiritual growth. She invested in eternity. And so she did not allow herself to be weighted down. And what did Jesus say to Martha? Jesus said to Martha, 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 you are careful and troubled or weighted down about so many things. But Mary has chosen the good part. It'll never be taken away from her. And so just keep that in mind. That's what a weight is. That's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Prioritize it. Don't allow distractions or weights or um, encumbrances to take you away from the numero uno most important front burner thing for every Christian And that is putting first, prioritizing the kingdom of God. But then he said, we got to lay aside sin as well. And it's interesting to me how he phrases it. The sin that easily besets or entangles us. Now, interestingly, the words, sin that so easily besets us. Those six words uh, come from one single Greek word that means easily encircling, easily encircling. And it refers to a serious hindrance that literally surrounds or encircles somebody who desperately needs to advance in the things of God. So he he said, there's a sin that can surround you, encircle you. You know, the old cowboy and Indian movies where the the Indians would, would encircle a stagecoach and begin to fire fiery arrows into it. They encircled it. That's the idea, that sin can encircle us. And I, I, the, the writer is talking about a sin <clears throat> that entangles the Christian runner. Not a weight now, not an encumbrance. This is a sin. And it entangles the Christian runner like a long, loose robe clinging to his legs and hindering his speed. Now, this could be talking about sin in general, or it could be talking about an individual weakness. You know, I heard somebody preach one time a message called that one thing. It could be talking about that one thing that I think most of us deal with one particular thing that we're more vulnerable to than almost any other sin. You know, somewhere in the past, we open a door, uh, a bad door, and a habit comes in, an addiction comes in, something that really gets a root into us. And he might be talking about that sin, the sin that easily entangles us. Now, it's interesting that he says, here's how you deal with it. Lay it aside. Uh, Another version says, cast it off. The idea is you've got a coat on and you take the coat off and you cast it aside. So he's saying as a believer, we have the power to take an easily entangling sin and cast it aside. Now, that may be hard for you to believe, and and believe me, I've dealt with sins that, you know, they didn't go as quickly as others did, and they were harder to subdue or to get victory over. But here's here's what he's telling us. This is what the Bible text says. He said, take that those weights and take those sins that encircle you and entangle you easily and lay them aside, lay them down, cast them aside. Now, if he tells us to do it, it must be that we can do it. 
And how do we do it? We do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. If I, by the Spirit, uh, Paul says in Romans 8, if I, by the Spirit, do put to death the deeds of the flesh, the sins of the flesh, I will live. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're to lay aside every weight. We're to prioritize Jesus, the kingdom of God, and we're to lay aside, cast aside every sin. You know, those, those two words, lay aside, cast aside, that, that was one of Paul's favorite phases, or phrases. He says in Romans 13, 12, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside, let us cast off the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, I believe this is important. If you lay something down, you've got to pick something else up. The Bible never tells us to put something down and leave a big spiritual vacuum in our life. No, it says, if you put something down, then pick up something good. If you lay something bad down, pick something good up. Put on the armor of light. To the Ephesian church, he writes, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside, cast off the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So there it is again. Lay aside, cast off that old, corrupted old man, uh, the Adam nature, the sin nature, and put on the new man and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So again and again, we Christians are exhorted to lay aside or cast away those things that both defile and hinder our walk. Now, having cast off weights and sins, the writer next addresses in verse 2, the focus we should have. He said, <clears throat> fixing our eyes on Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So that word looking or the phrase fixing our eyes means in the original language, it means to look away from all else in order to fully focus on just one thing. It implies the concentration of a wandering gaze into a single direction. It's talking about having a laser-like focus on Jesus Christ. You know, I, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking of Elijah and Elisha. And you'll remember the dynamic duo. I, I love the stories of Elijah and his protege, Elisha. And when it came time for Elijah to be taken up into heaven in the fiery chariots and all of that, um, he asked Elisha, what do you want me to do for you? And Elisha said, I want a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah said, you've asked for a hard thing. But he said, here's the stipulation. If you, if you are looking at me when I am taken up, you will have what you have asked for. And I've often thought some days passed after he said this. And I've tried to picture Elisha walking with Elijah and how, man, he never took his eyes off him. Because at any time, the Lord could have come back and the Lord could have taken him up into heaven in the burning chariots of fire. And, and so Elijah had said to him, if you're looking, if you're watching, if your eye is on me when I'm taken up, <clears throat> then you will have a double portion of my spirit. I imagine Elisha sleeping with one eye open on Elijah because no one knew when he was going to be taken up. And sure enough, when Elijah was finally taken up, Elisha was looking at him and Elisha began to yell out, the chariots of fire, my father, my father, the chariots of fire. And he was letting him know, I'm watching you, I see you. And when Elijah had disappeared into heaven, suddenly a speck appeared that got larger and larger and dropped out of heaven and came slamming into the earth right in front of the wide-eyed Elisha. And it was the mantle of Elijah. And he picked it up and he walked to the river and he said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And he struck the river and it parted just like it had for the mighty prophet Elijah. And here's my point. The same way Elisha was watching Elijah with an eye peeled on him at all times, it says we're to look unto Jesus because that's where our mantle comes from. It comes from looking unto Jesus. 
That's where the victory is, looking unto Jesus. That's where the worries and cares of this world don't get a hook in us as long as we're looking unto Jesus. The Christian is to keep his eyes, her eyes, on Jesus at all times, in all places. The eye of faith always turned upward. That's why I believe it's best to get with God first thing in the morning because you really kind of set your spiritual gaze first thing in the morning for the rest of the day. So the writer goes on to assure us after telling us, let every, lay aside every weight, lay aside every sin, keep your eyes on Jesus. And then he says, here's why, because he's the one that authored our faith and he's the one that's going to perfect it. Thank God that he that has begun a good work in you is going to complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. And then next, if you look at verse three, he turns our thoughts to what Jesus suffered. Let's look at it. Look at verse three in Hebrews chapter 12. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart or faint. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Now think about that. He's saying, I want you to consider Jesus who was beaten, abused, whipped, shed blood, crucified on the cross, spilled his innocent blood on our behalf. I want you to think about it. I want you to roll that over in your head and consider that even though you're suffering from persecution and even though you're having to pay a price for your confession of faith, you have not gone through what Jesus went through. And he's saying, I want you to be strengthened by his example. You know, very few of us in America have ever shed blood for the testimony of Jesus Christ. They, they do all the time in other parts of the world. Somebody is probably being martyred, no doubt, right now. But in America, we haven't shed blood, not really. We've been ostracized, mocked, ridiculed, that kind of thing. But we haven't gone through near what Jesus did or the early apostles and disciples. But uh, he's saying, he's saying, in light of that, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Don't faint. Don't give up. Don't regret your confession of faith. And, and next, now he segues into the whole subject of God's discipline of you and me. And, and, and what he's going to do, and I want you to catch this, what he's going to do, uh, these people were under persecution. Uh, they were under, uh, they were losing jobs. They were losing their homes. We've already read in Hebrews how they had, their goods had been plundered. Uh, they, uh, Roman soldiers had gone in and taken their belongings. Some of them had been martyred. Some of them were missing a loved one because they had, they had paid the ultimate price for their faith. So these, these Jewish Christians that the writer is addressing are in the red hot oven of hot persecution for the cause of Christ. And what he's going to do is he's going to say, God is using this persecution to discipline you. And when I say discipline, I mean train you. So what we're about to see is in the midst of all of the trouble they're going through and all the high price they're paying for their faith, God is weaving his golden scarlet thread of grace through all of their trouble and God is working in it to train them and mature them and work it for their good. And that's what he does with all of our suffering. All the suffering we're going through right now with this virus, all the suffering we go through daily, crucifying the flesh, walking in the spirit, saying no to the world, saying yes to Christ, having some people reject us because of our faith, all the suffering we experience God is working it for our good and he's training us and he's disciplining us. So with that in mind, look at verse five, chapter 12, and let's read. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, the writer here is quoting Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Direct quote from Solomon. 
And Solomon is writing as a father to a son. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying to his readers is, have you forgotten those verses? Because the Jewish people were very, very familiar with Solomon's writings and with the book of Proverbs. So he's saying to them, have you forgotten what Solomon wrote by the Holy Spirit? That God disciplines every son he receives. And he scourges every child of his every time. So he's saying, have you forgotten that? And he's saying, in in the midst of your suffering through persecution, have you forgotten those verses? He's lovingly reminding them that afflictions are designed uh, on the part of God to bring positive results in the lives of his people. Remember that. We don't like to hear it. I don't like to hear it. But one of the signs of God's genuine love for you and me, is his discipline of us. He disciplines and scourges every son and daughter he receives. So if you're a child of God, if you're a blood-bought, spirit-filled child of God, if you know you're going to heaven because Jesus Christ has come into your heart, then you're a child of God. And if you're a child of God, listen carefully to me, you are going to be disciplined by God and you are going to be scourged by God. That's what he says. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. Let's talk about the two things, discipline and scourging. Now, discipline is from a Greek word called paiduo. And I know that's Greek to you, but it's paiduo. And paiduo is used to describe the strict training of a child as, as the parents are raising this child and training him. They discipline him to do right and to shun what is wrong They discipline and they scourge every son and daughter, but they discipline him. They discipline every child by training. They train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. They train a child. That's the word discipline. So that that child matures and is able to handle life and able to be a productive contributor to society. So every child born to decent parents, is trained, disciplined from early on. And he's telling us that's exactly what God does. The minute we are born again and we are little children of God, God begins to discipline and train us. Now, let me ask you, are the trials that God has allowed into your life and mine, are they part of our divine training? Are they part of your divine training? Have you ever stopped to think that some of the trials you're experiencing right now may have even been sent by God, at the very least allowed by God? Why? Why doesn't he protect us from every trial? Because he uses trials to discipline and train us into maturity, just like a parent disciplines and trains a child. Let me ask another question. Are we resenting what God has allowed into our life? Are we even rebuking what God's allowed into our life? You know, sometimes we rebuke the devil, and it's not the devil, it's God. God has allowed it into our life to train us. Or here's another question. Are we embracing it, the training of God, the discipline of God, the trials God has allowed into our life to teach us and train us, teach us how to walk by faith, teach us how to get into the word of God, teach us how to trust him, teach us how to walk with him, teach us how to forgive other people? Are, are we allowing God to train us? Are we embracing it? That's what the writer of Hebrews is asking these Jewish believers. And then he says, not only does God discipline us, but God scourges every son he received. I don't like that word, but it's there. Another translation puts it like this. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he whips Every son whom he receives. Now, scourging is the most severe form of God's discipline. It will, figuratively speaking, this is what the the Greek word means. Figuratively speaking, it draws blood. Scourging draws blood. Figuratively speaking, it's the toughest form of God's discipline. Now, let me give you an example. When I was in school, most of you know my testimony. Uh, I, I was in a lot of trouble as a kid, and I fully, vividly remember 
uh, getting into trouble all the time in school. And so they would discipline me. And one of the things that they would discipline me with was um, sending me to study hall and making me stay after school. And I hated that because I hated school. And I wanted to get out as soon as I could. Uh, but but when I got in trouble in school and got sent to the office, then the principal would say, okay, Jeff, I, I'm going to have to discipline you. And he would say, um, I want you staying after school in study hall, and I want you to study this, that, and the other. And that was a form of discipline. Now, if discipline, the study hall kind of discipline didn't work, oh, I so remember being sent to the office yet again and hearing the principal open up the drawer and hearing the sound of that wooden paddle be pulled out of the drawer. Now, this was back in the days when a principal could could discipline a child with the board. And I remember it so well. It was wrapped with tape and it had holes in it. And what that was, was I went from discipline to scourging. And I remember it very well. Now, I didn't draw blood, but I would have told you it probably did. But that's what he's saying. When God disciplines you and me, we need to pay attention. When he says, don't go there, don't do this, don't do that. Do this, do that. Walk here, walk there. Don't walk there. Don't walk over there. Don't run with them. Don't run with that kind of person, but run with this kind of people. Don't, don't, don't involve yourself in this and that. And, and we disobey, then God disciplines. We, he, we, we lose our peace. We feel convicted. We know that we need to repent. That's the discipline of God. The Holy Ghost inside of us disciplines us. And guess what? If we ignore that and we don't listen to God and we stiffen our neck and we continue in our disobedience, then God has scourging. God has a paddle. And it can be, listen, different strokes for different folks. But let me tell you, when God brings that scourging into your life, You don't have to ask somebody if you're being scourged. You know you're being scourged because it hurts like scourging is designed to hurt. And we get right back into the will of God. That pain gets us back into the will of God. So here's what the writer is saying. He's urging us, rather than fainting under prolonged trials and and, and prolonged training at the hands of God, Bear under it patiently, knowing this, God is working it for your and my good. Amen? Now let's read on, beginning with verse 7. Look at verse 7, chapter 12 of Hebrews. He's going to talk more about discipline. It is for discipline that you endure. You endure so you can be trained. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, how many have become partakers? All Christians are partakers of God's discipline. He says that if you're not experiencing that, then you're illegitimate children and you're not sons. You're not born again. Because if you're born again, you're going to experience the discipline and training of God. Verse 9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good. Now, look what the good is. So that we may share his holiness. That's why God disciplines. So verse 10 has given us the first key reason that God disciplines all of his children, that we might share in his holiness. Remember when David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now that I've been afflicted, I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I drifted. But now that I've been afflicted, I keep your word. See, when we go through trials that hurt, when we suffer, when we go through some pain, what does it do? It drives us to the word of God. It drives us into closer obedience than we would normally exercise. And that's what he's saying. God disciplines us so that we will seek him, call out on him, draw near to him, open up his word, get close. Before I was afflicted, I drifted. But now that I've been afflicted, I am sharing in his holiness on a level I wouldn't have before. Now, look at verse 11. 
all discipline for the moment seems to not be joyful, but sorrowful indeed. Yet to those who have been trained by God's discipline, afterwards it yields, here's a second reason God disciplines, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now I love the word afterwards. He said afterwards, that tells me trials don't last, but God's grace and mercy do. Afterwards, when the trial is over, there is an afterward. And this verse gives us that second key reason. Afterwards, we notice in our own life that we have brought forth a peaceable fruit of righteousness. One commentator says, the peaceable fruit of righteousness is a righteous compliance with the whole will of God and a purging out of all sin. Afterward, filling the soul with joy and with peace. So God's discipline brings us more in line with being submitted to the will of God. And after the trial is over and we have sought him and the training has come to a close for now, we experience peace. We experience joy. It's the peaceable fruit of righteous living. God has cleansed us. God has purified us and brought us to a greater dependence on him. And that all happens by his training. So in light of this truth, the writer next encourages us in verse 12 and 13. Listen carefully because some of you need to hear this. I need to hear this. He says, therefore, in light of the fact that you know God's discipline is training you and it's going to bring about great fruit and holiness in your life and make you more like Jesus, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but let it rather be healed. So he's telling us now how to respond to God's discipline. How do you respond? Don't faint. Don't give up. Don't put up the white flag. Don't walk away. Don't be discouraged, but stay with it and make straight paths for your feet. Now, You'll recall that in verse 1 that we read uh, just a little while ago, chapter 12, verse 1, you'll recall that the writer tells us we have been placed in a race. We are running a race. And we're to lay aside every weight and every sin. And we're to focus fully on Jesus as we run that race. And now in verse 12, the runner who's running the race is about to faint. His hands and knees are weak. He's pictured with drooping hands and knees that are tottering and shaking. It's a picture of somebody that's just about to quit running, even walking and sit down and give up and put up the white flag and no longer continue. He can hardly walk, much less run. So the apostle's advice for this Christian is, hey, Straighten up, stand up, and mark out a spiritual straight path of obedience to God. He's saying, listen, it's not time to faint. It's not time to give up. Trying times are the worst times to quit trying. He's saying, stand up. Strengthen yourself in God. Remember when it says that David encouraged himself and the Lord is God? Sometimes, folks, we've got to get down with the word of God, look at the promises of God, dig deep in the scriptures of God, and look up at Jesus and encourage ourselves in the Lord our God and stand back up. He says, make a straight path for your feet. Don't look to the right, as the writer of Proverbs said in Proverbs 4, turn not to the right nor to the left. But set a straight path for your feet. Set your eyes looking right ahead. And don't quit now. Don't give up now. Don't give up the ghost now. Righteous living is, is a healing thing. That's what he's telling us. You know, when somebody is coming back to the Lord, I've ministered through the years to many, many people that backslid and walked away and got away from the Lord uh, sometimes for many, many years. And when they come back, they're very discouraged and down on themselves, beating themselves up, uh, you know, just kicking themselves for what they've done. And uh, I, I say to them, look, the best thing you can do 
is just get into the Word and start living right. Live right. It will bring healing to your soul. Now, notice he says, lest that which is lame be put out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Now, I used to think that was talking about something that was lame within the runner himself. But now I see it's not. That which is lame is not pointing to something wounded or hurt within the runner. It's about the struggling believers that are all around the runner watching him or her. And he's literally saying, pull yourself up, be encouraged in God, live a clean life so that those who are spiritually struggling, weak and lame, will not lose hope because you have lost hope. In other words, somebody's always watching you and me. So he's saying, for the sake of others, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get into the word, get back in the race and start running again because others are watching you and and they are strengthened by your walk. So if you quit, then they're going to be much more inclined to quit. Um, So in this way, we are indeed our brother's keeper. You know, Jesus said of himself uh, about the disciples in his intercessory prayer in John 17, Jesus says to God, for their sakes, talking about the disciples, I sanctify myself, lest they also, or that they also may be sanctified by the truth. He's saying, Father, I sanctify myself, not just for you, not just because I want to walk with you, but I sanctify myself so that they would see it as well, and they would in turn sanctify themselves. So Jesus lived not just for God, but he lived for others. Now, for time's sake, let's read together through the rest of the chapter, and I'm just going to comment a little bit here and there along the way, and let's wrap it up. Look at verse 14. He says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which nobody will see the Lord. Sanctification is when we set ourselves aside under the Lord and we allow the Holy Spirit to remove us from the sin of this world. And he's saying, if we don't allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, we will not enjoy a relationship with the Lord. Then verse 15, see to it that nobody comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. So here he's talking about that root of bitterness and he says, he says, always forgive so you don't fall into the trap of the gall of bitterness, which always takes a believer down and out. And not only that, but when you walk in a root of bitterness, others are watching and others are listening and that bitterness in you also embitters and affects them. And I like to say, We get skunked by bitterness, then we skunk others. So he's saying, don't get skunked by bitterness, but be a quick forgiver. Then verse 16, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears." Now, here the writer is talking about immorality. Now, the word he uses for immoral, let no immoral person be among you, the Greek word is pornos, and it's the word from which we get pornography. Pornography simply means immoral pictures. That's what it means. Immoral pictures, pornos, pornography. And he's saying fornication, immorality, will break your fellowship with God. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that uh, not only that, but all other sins we commit are done outside the body, but fornication, immorality, sexual sin is done against our body. So he says, let it not be once named among you. Now next, the apostle compares two mountains, the Old Testament mountain of fear and the New Testament mountain of joy. We're coming to the the close of the chapter now, verse 18. He's talking to the believers now, the Jewish believers, and he says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire 
and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. What, what mountain is he talking about here? Mount Sinai, where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And the writer is saying, you remember that mountain. You've read about that mountain and what your descendants experienced. It was a blazing fire. It was dark. It was gloomy. It was a whirlwind. It was scary. It was frightening. It was intimidating. He says in verse 20, for they could not bear the command that if even a beast touches the mountain, it'll be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that even Moses, the man of God, said, I'm full of fear and trembling. No, he says, you haven't come to that mountain in the new covenant. We've come to a different mountain in the new covenant, a better mountain in the new covenant, Mount Zion. He says in verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Look at the difference in our mountain. He calls it the heavenly Jerusalem. Myriads of angels are there. And to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous who have been made perfect and to Jesus. That's the best of all. He's in our Mount Zion, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, that's talking about the blood of Jesus, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So he said, you've come to a mountain, Mount Zion, that is so, so, so much better than was Mount Sinai, where the law was given. And finally, we close with the writer speaking of the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, verse 25 so he says again, he's, he's reiterating his theme through the whole book. He has reiterated this theme over and over again. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, when Moses warned them on earth to obey the law of God, and so many of them refuse his words, he says, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And that's talking about Jesus Christ. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Verse 26, and his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. God's voice shook the earth in Moses' day. He shook the earth in Old Testament times. He shook the earth with the flood of Noah. He shook the earth with fire falling on Sodom and Gomorrah. He shook the earth when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and the mountain was shaking and trembling. He shook the earth many times in the Old Testament. But here he says God's going to shake the earth one more time. Now watch this carefully because this is still to come. Yet once more, says God, I'm going to shake not only the earth, but I'm going to shake the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes or it tells us the removing of those things which can be shaken as of everything created so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now, folks, that's telling us this. There is a final judgment coming. Follow me now. Watch this. He's saying... God shook the earth in the Old Testament, but he's going to shake it one more time. It hasn't happened yet. And when that shaking comes, everything that can be shaken is going to be shaken. Everything God created, everything material is going to be shaken and removed. And the only thing that's going to, be, be, uh, to remain is the one thing that cannot be shaken, and that is the new kingdom, the new Jerusalem the new world that is coming when Jesus Christ returns to set up his kingdom. That is the kingdom that cannot and will never be shaken. So he closes out in verse 28, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, hallelujah, glory to God, let us show gratitude. How many of you are thankful that we have been brought into this incredible promise, into a kingdom with a great king whose kingdom will never 
ever be shaken, stained by sin, touched by the devil, ruined by flesh, touched by sickness, nothing. It cannot, not one molecule, not one atom of it will ever be shaken. Does that give you gratitude? Can we just thank the Lord right where we are in our living room, in our office, wherever you are? Can we just show gratitude and say, Jesus, thank you that I've come into a kingdom that will never be shaken. It'll never be removed. It'll never be affected by anything evil. But Lord, that kingdom and that shaking is, that next shaking is coming. And what's going to remain is the kingdom of which I am now a part because of Jesus Christ in my life. Can we just thank the Lord for that? Amen, amen, amen. So let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. What a powerful chapter. What a powerful chapter. Thank God that we're in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's why... We're not shaken in a thing like the coronavirus. No, there is a stability and there is a peace and there is a soundness and there is a, an assurance in the heart of every child of God. Though this world all around me is being shaken all the time, not my kingdom, not my king, not my promises. So I, I leave you with that great, great word and I thank you for listening and It's been such a joy to be with you once again. I want you to know, as always, Cindy and I so miss being with you. And I so look forward. And that day is coming. It's coming. And until that day comes, we're walking in the stability of the kingdom that can't be shaken. I leave. uh, I speak God's peace over you and and, uh, his, his presence. And I thank God that he's with every one of us. We'll see you next time. Uh, oh, and by the way, I've got a message for you on Mother's Day. I'm going to be talking about a very special mother revealed in the New Testament, and it's not Mother Mary. It's another one. So mothers, don't forget, Saturday, 10 to noon, uh, come to the parking lot. We're going to have a photo booth for you and your children, and you bring your own props, teddy bears, whatever it is you want to bring uh, to be in the, included in the picture. And uh, we want to minister to many of you Saturday morning, 10 to noon, and Sunday I'm bringing a message on a mother's advice, a mother's advice, and uh, a mother's influence. A mother's great influence. Don't miss it. And I look forward to being with you Mother's Day Sunday. God bless you. Until next time, amen.